I have been blessed or cursed. It depends on the way you look at it. With an incurably restless, probing mind and an inordinate capacity for hard work. I was never idle in Santa Barbara from the moment the wardrobe door opened to me until the bubble burst in 1920 in the wreckage of a car at Ventura. I was never idle. There was no time to be idle. There was a language to be learned, a repair business to establish, new shoes to make, to new designs. Above all, there was a secret to be unearthed, to be ferreted from the recesses of the past through months of research and experiment, trial and error. These were happy years, blackened at the end by discordancy and death, but while they lasted supreme in attempt and achievement. The strands of my life in these years were woven and interwoven. I must try to disentangle them so that the pattern becomes clear. First, there was the shop. My older brothers found the necessary capital for rent and machines. Alfonso and Secondino decided to work in the repair business, part-time to begin with, and then, if we prospered, full-time, while I, as the expert on shoes, was to be responsible for the shoemaking and any headwork which might be needed. Whenever trade in handmade shoes was slack, I would also help with the repairs. We found premises in the center of Santa Barbara at 1033 State Street. It was an old shack with one main and one back room, surrounded by handsome buildings. The site was enormously valuable, but the owner, a Spanish doctor, refused either to sell or to build up. He was incorruptible. I believe the shop is still there and it is still a repair shop, though it is more than 40 years since the Farragamo brothers first opened it. Next, we had to find machinery for the repairs as well as the lasts and the tools I would require. Eventually, after a great deal of difficulty, we were able to secure a sole sewing machine and a buffer, a combination machine comprising edge trimming, edge setting, sandpapering the heels, boffing the soles and two brushes, one black and one brown for polishing. This was all our equipment at first. From the beginning, I disliked the machinery intensely. It offended me as being too clumsy, too ugly and too slow. And so, though I have no mechanical knowledge, I worried over the details of a system which would enable us to repair shoes many times more speedily than they had ever been repaired before. I solved the problem at last and eventually we refined the work to such an extent that we were able to establish a repairs while you wait service so rapid that a customer who wanted his shoe soles mended was in and out of the shop again almost before he had sat down. As the client walked in and before a shoe was off his foot, I diagnosed the type of sole he required. By the time Alfonso had made a few remarks about the weather and taken off the second shoe, I had already affixed the first sole. Alfonso would keep up his patter for a few seconds while Secondino worked on the second shoe. And by the time Alfonso moved away to attend to a new client and the customer was sitting back and opening his newspaper, his shoes were ready to go back on his feet. The effect of this refinement upon our trade was startling. People came for repairs and even out of curiosity to see the small youth and his brothers working so rapidly.
My lack of English was a heavy handicap at first, especially as the flow of customers for shoes and repairs grew from a trickle to a steady stream and then to a flood beyond our productive capacities. The Americans were intrigued to see this young Italian boy making shoes. They came and talked to me, and when I found it impossible to understand their desires, I would call one of my brothers from the back of the shop to act as an interpreter. My customers frowned on this practice. In America, it was necessary to speak the language, and some of them, including the film stars, decided to teach me a few words. When I had mastered the pronunciation, they roared with laughter and went away and brought back their friends. They made me repeat the words, and then the friends roared with laughter, too. I laughed as heartily as any until I discovered from my brothers that my education in English was limited strictly to swear words. As a means of obtaining a less embarrassing command of English, I studied at a night school. After a few lessons, I was proud of my new knowledge, with the result that I dropped a heavy brick one day when two actresses from the American film studios, Mary Pickford's sister, Lottie, and Helen Hayward, came into the shop in playful mood. They told me they had decided to marry me, but as I could marry only one of them, I must make the choice. Gallantly, I said, or thought I said, I'll marry both of you. Alas, my English fell short of the demands upon it. What I actually said was, I'll marry neither of you. Alfonso had to emerge from the recesses of the shop to explain my error. Lottie and Helen were anxious to know why I should want to marry them both. So that you can go out and work for me while I stay at home and spend the money, like the Italian men do, I said, slandering Italian husbands. They retorted, oh no, you do the work, we'll spend the money. Shoe repairing and language learning, however, were only sidelines, necessary but not essential. It was to feet and the making of shoes by hand that my heart was devoted, and it was in the work I did for the studio and later for individual customers that I obtained the greatest joy. Although the film industry was in its infancy at the time, with mammoth spectacles still unknown, the American Film Company, its name has long vanished from the ranks of filmmakers, it was absorbed into William Fox, which in turn became 20th Century Fox, was a considerable organization for its day. At the time when I was first associated with it, the AFC concentrated cheaply on westerns and a weekly serial, Diamond from the Sky, which achieved notable success. It employed a good many actors, including a few who were destined never to be forgotten, among them Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Sr., the Costello sisters, Paula Negri, and Dolores Del Rio. Others less famous but who may still be remembered by an older generation of cinema-goers were Barbara Lamar, May McAvoy, Helen Hayward, and Lottie Pickford. My first work for the AFC consisted of correcting the mistakes of the shoemakers at Eureka. The wardrobe director would send me their boots and I would shorten them or lengthen them or broaden them or make them smaller. But soon he was sending me individual orders and then orders for a series of boots and shoes for short films and diamond from the sky installments. The boots for the cereal had to be delivered three weeks before the installment for which they were made was ready to be shot. 
and at first the company kept a wary eye on my workmanship and design. Then, as they discovered I could be relied upon, they began to send me the scripts and allow me to work out the number of pairs of boots required and to choose my own designs. As the quantity of my work fluctuated, so did my decisions on the company's shoes. When business was good, I would make only the number absolutely required, pointing out that this or that scene was close up and therefore required no shoes. If business was slack, I would make more pairs than were strictly necessary, arguing that even if a scene was close up, the actors would not register correctly if they were not shod correctly. From cowboy boots, I graduated to shoes for the actresses, and as the company expanded and turned its attention to wider fields than the Western, I was faced with the problem of making shoes for costume and historical films, including the cloak and dagger adventures of Douglas Fairbanks, who became a good friend. Fairbanks had visited Italy many times and spoke a few words of the language. He was also passionately fond of Italian food. It was my custom to take sandwiches into the shop for my morning snack, and Fairbanks made a habit of dropping in just to see what I was eating that day. Usually it was salami or prosciutto or provolone, but one day, I think it was during the filming of The Thief of Baghdad, for which I made him a special pair of extremely flexible padded riding boots to protect his legs during his athletic maneuvers, I filled the sandwiches with chili peppers. When he came in, I warned him, it's not salami or ham or cheese today, it's peppers and they are very hot. He waved a hand. That's all right, Salvatore, he said. I love peppers. They can't come too hot for me. He took a huge bite and began to munch happily. Suddenly, his face changed. I saw that he could not close his lips. His mouth moved like a fish gasping for air, and his eyes burned with tears. In anguish, he dropped the remainder of the sandwich and, rushing to the back of the shop, he pushed his face under the water tap until he had restored his mouth to its normal temperature. The most important development of my career at that time, however, was the arrival of the stars with orders for their personal shoes. Lottie Pickford, effervescent, excitable, and extravagant, the antithesis of her sister, then Mary Pickford herself, afterwards came the Costello sisters, and Barbara Lamar, Helen Hayward, Paula Negri, May McAvoy, and ambitious extras like Lily Sampson and Lolita Lee. My first private customer was Lottie Pickford. It was for her that I created my first model, a plain pair of court shoes in brown kidskin leather. Fancy leathers were scarce in those days, with twin ears sticking up at the front. I shall never forget either the shoes or the occasion. Lottie, whom I had already met on the set when I went to fit the shoes and the stars for their films, came into the shop one day and said, I want a new pair of shoes. Make them for me. I measured her feet and set to work, trying to make the best pair I could for her, knowing the importance of her order as the start of my personal custom-made shoe business. But when they were finished, I was worried. They seemed a half-size too small. Lottie arrived. To my surprise and delight, they fitted perfectly. When I ventured to suggest they might be a trifle small, she said, they are perfect. Don't you dare make any of my shoes to another size in the future. Then she said, but I'm not going to take these shoes as they are. I want something different. I was upset. I looked at the shoes and I offered to make her another pair. 
She shook her head emphatically. No, she said. I want these shoes, but I want them different. Besides, you haven't time to make me a new pair. I want them to wear at a wedding tomorrow. So you go away and make them different. And out she went. I puzzled over the problem all the remainder of that day without finding a solution. By dinner time, I was at my wit's end. I couldn't paint them over because in those days, there was no paint that would stay on. I couldn't embroider them because the shoes were already completed. I did not want to perforate them because it is a device I have never approved. So long after the shop was shut for the day and we were all having dinner, I still worried about the shoes. Then I had an idea. I rose from the table and said, I'm going to the shop to do some work. In the shop, I put Lottie's shoes before me and began to doodle with a sharp knife, cutting oblongs and diamonds and circles in the surface of the leather. Some of the cut leather I peeled off, some I left sticking out. When I finished the shoes, reflected the mood in which they had been completed, craziness out of desperation. They were the craziest shoes you'd ever see, but they were certainly different. Lottie was delighted. She walked out of our shop as if she was walking on air. After Lottie came Mary Pickford, whose feet were the prettiest, the best shaped, and the smallest of all the many film stars I've shot. She's a small woman, of course, beautiful but small, yet her feet, even in proportion to her size, are tiny. The joints inside her feet are like those of a baby, but the toes and arches are flawlessly shaped. If it were not for their size, I would say that they are the most perfect feet in the world. My first wholesale orders from a private individual came from Paula Negri. She was only a child then, but she was already making her way rapidly to her reputation as one of the most tempestuous actresses on the silent screen. She was never tempestuous with me, and there was nothing stormy or extravagant in her choice of shoe styles. She asked for nothing but a plain court shoe made in a number of different styles. I would make her perhaps a dozen pairs at once, all in white satin, but she would never wear them white. Every time she had a new dress, she would send the shoes down to be dyed the exact shade to match, a popular practice in those days. Indeed, traces of the fashion linger today, because shoes accurately and recently dyed always catch the eye. To meet the demand, we'd installed a dyeing machine using quick-drying spirit dye. Paula bought her shoes in quantity because she hated dirty shoes and had an aversion to cleaning them. It was not unusual for her to go through five pairs of similar shoes in a month, wearing each pair a few times and then discarding them. As my trade widened, so did my mental horizon. The fetters I had unconsciously bound upon myself in Bonito because scope for art and craftsmanship were limited began to loosen. I was still largely limited in my choice of materials to kid and calfskin leathers, either suede or plain. The more exotic skins of python, ostrich, lizards, and water snakes were often too poor in quality for the standards I was setting for myself. Were too often poor in quality for the standards I was setting for myself and the methods of treating and dyeing them were still far from perfect. Nevertheless, I reveled in the better quality of the leathers I could get. And as the stars were usually content to allowing me to choose styles and designs, I started to indulge my passion for being different and experimented with new styles.
The fashion in the United States at the time was for an extremely sharp pointed toe. I made shoes in the style for a time until I found it boring. I felt it was time for a change. And so when Barbara Lamar came to me one day for shoes, which would be different, I sat down and designed my French toe, which France had never heard of. It was not a handsome style. Indeed, it was ugly, for I cut the point off sharply and produced a rounded toe that made the foot look short and stubby, redeeming its worst features by giving it an extremely high heel to preserve an illusion of short, slim slenderness. Nevertheless, it was immediately popular. Mary Pickford ordered the second pair in the style, and from that time I made them regularly. Another fashion of the day which I ached to alter was the closed-in shoe. Most of the stars of the period were intensely reluctant to bear any part of their feet, much preferring boots, greatly in vogue, and high oxfords or shoes that came right up to the instep. Even in Bonito, I had been intrigued by the possibilities of design and style in sandals and open-toe shoes, and now I began to dream again of putting women's feet in sandals. My chance came at last. The AFC ordered a series of sandals for extras to wear in a film. I fulfilled the order and thought they looked good, but to my surprise and dismay, when I tried to persuade my private customers to wear them, they stubbornly refused. At first, my only convert was Lily Sampson, an extra with gypsy beauty and ambitions for stardom. She never made the grade, but perhaps she imagined that unusual footwear would help her to attract attention, and so she was the first girl to appear on the streets of Santa Barbara wearing sandals. After Lily came Lolita Lee, another extra with a growing reputation who was also bent on being a star. Like Lily Sampson, she did not succeed, but she too was making a splash in hopes of future fame. And there, the demand for my sandals stopped. I had reluctantly come to the conclusion that I would have to forget all about them until times changed. When an Indian princess came into my shop one day while I was making a second series of sandals for another film. To the princess, there was nothing outrageous in showing the foot. She was greatly attracted to my sandals and ordered a pair in exactly the same style. When I saw them on her feet, I was delighted. They looked even better than I had hoped and much better than I expected them to look on the feet of the film extras. The princess was so pleased that she ordered a pair in every color, five pairs in all. It was a style with a flat heel and a lace trimming which wound almost up to her ankles. I called them my Roman sandals, and when the princess wore them in Santa Barbara, she caused a sensation. The Los Angeles Times wrote a long article about them, and all the film stars suddenly decided that they too must wear sandals. Their popularity proved so extensive that I took the style from Santa Barbara to Hollywood when I went there and manufactured it there almost to the time I left America to return to Italy. Yet these achievements, considerable as they were in their own fashion, were nothing against the obsession which dominated my first two years in Santa Barbara, my unceasing search for the secret that had eluded shoemakers for centuries, the secret of the shoes that would always 